0: Nobody remembers their first. A police officer friend once told me, recalling his first arrest decades before we met. He's right. Some cases just stick with you. They follow you around, keep you up at night, wake you up in the morning. You try to move on, work on other things, but it's no use. They won't let you go. Not when you were the same age as the victim grew up in the same town, wore the exact same clothes. Today on Crime Capsule, we have the story of two women who lived almost exactly the same life, who could have been sisters, almost certainly would have been friends had one of them not had her life taken from her in May 1978. Elaine Fogel, native of Orangeburg, South Carolina, was murdered in her home at age 26. But taking up her case was Rita Schuler, a freshly minted officer with the state law enforcement agency, who would follow Elaine's story for the next 40 years, even after it went cold. Rita wouldn't just write a book about Elaine's murder. First, she would solve it. Rita, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Before we get into the details of Elaine's case, Can you tell us, how did you get your start back in the day?
1: Well, when I graduated high school, I I decided that I either wanted to be in the medical profession or be a police officer. And uh, I was a little skittish about being a police officer out on the street, and forensics wasn't really big back then. It wasn't even hardly a word back in the 60s when I graduated. So I decided to go ahead and try my hands at being an x-ray technologist. Didn't want to be a nurse and an x-ray technologist. And we had a school not too far from where I was born and raised down in the country there, maybe about 20 miles, Orangeburg, South Carolina. So uh, I went into training there. I had a 2 years training. I was certified as a registered radiologic technologist. And during my time there, I got interested in the homicides that happened there in the city because the police officers, if they needed help with an investigation, such as finding a bullet in the body, they would bring them over to the hospital and we had to go down to the morgue and x-ray those bodies to find that bullet. And the first time that the police officers brought in a deceased body and they needed to find the bullet. Um, the senior technologists came to me and said okay since you're a student um, you're gonna have to go down in the morgue, assist and find that bullet for them and x-ray the body down there. And I think they wanted to see how shocking it would be to me and I looked at him and I said man send me on down there. And I went on down and came back up after we did find the bullet in the body. And I said, man, I I am so interested in this. Next time you got a dead body in the morgue, I said, send me, you don't have to worry about sending anybody else. So that dates me back to, to during my younger years, I was always really interested and curious about crime and how one person could do something to another person's body how could you shoot them how could you stab them and mom and dad um, we being raised on the farm we had newspapers we had radios and if we had a murder around the neighborhood or anywhere close they would involve my brother and i in this they would tell us about it not to shock us but to let us know that bad things went on out there. And that's when my little mind just really started turning. And I said, you know, I this is just interesting to me. And that's when I got interested in police work.
0: So how did you make the transition from working in medicine to working in law enforcement?
1: After about 12 years in the hospital, I kind of got burnt out a little bit. And during the time of my x-ray career, we were... Fortunate enough that we could travel to different states and go to conventions and go to seminars. One of those courses happened to be Forensic Photography and Radiology. It showed us how photographs and x-rays got into the legal system in order to explain to the jury how the case proceeded and to try and solve the case. And my, little, my mind just started turning. I said, oh, my gosh. I said, I've got to be a part of this when I get back. That's when forensic <laughs> was just starting around. That was around 76, I believe. And um, during my time in my x-ray career, my chief technologist had a dark room So he was teaching me how to develop film in that darkroom. And when I got back to the x-ray department after that meeting, I was talking to one of my x-ray maintenance guys, and I was telling him about the convention. And when he listened at me, he said, Rita, have you um, thought about maybe checking with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division? I said, I hadn't really thought too much about law enforcement in my career and the agency here. And he says, well, I've got a friend over there. And his name is Mickey Dawson. He used to be in the photography area, but he is now switched over to the question documents area, so they need a forensic photographer in the photography area. And I said, oh, my gosh. I said, I know Mickey Dawson. I said, he is married to an x-ray technologist that works at one of the other hospitals here. So that was kind of my connection. And I called Mickey, and he said, Rita, he said, we do have an opening over here. He said, but I'll tell you, he said, I know they won't pay as much as they do at the hospital. I said, I ain't worried about the pay. I said, this thing is just fascinating to me, and I want to really get into the photography part of it and investigation part of it. That was it. I went, I interviewed, they did my background check, and I checked out, (laughs) so So I got the job within a couple weeks and and that was when I started with SLED. It was October the 1st, 1977. And that was probably the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life because um, I, I really did have a successful career there. In the first day I went, they were showing me around, doing a little orientation. One of the crime scene investigators took me over to their area and I was a part of the crime scene area. My photography lab was a part of the crime scene area. I assisted them with all the evidence and all photographs and developing their crime scene photos. So they took me over to their crime scene lab and they pulled a drawer open and in that drawer there was a picture of a dishpan And in that dishpan was a decapitated head with a bullet hole in the side of the head right below the ear. And I don't know if they were doing that to shock me or whatever, but he, I mean, I looked at it and he said, Rita, you're going to be working with cases like this. Can you handle it? I looked at it and I went, you know what? I know that case. I said, this case happened in Pamplico, South Carolina? And he said... Yeah. He said, how do you know that? I said, man, I was a little eight-year-old girl when this thing happened back in, I I think it was 1958. Anyway, I was a little eight-year-old girl and I said, this thing happened and it was all over the newspapers in our area and mom and dad would, would read it to us and keep up on what had happened and until they found the bad guy. And I started giving them some history of it. And he said, well, he said, I guess you want to see the rest of the pictures. And you want to see the knife that he decapitated this head with? And I went, oh, yeah. I said, I really want to see that. So um, they took me and showed me all of that. And, you know, that was the first day I was there. And I just felt like, okay, I know this is where I'm supposed to be now. And that was my first day at SLED.
0: You get there October 1st, 1977. You had been on the force for about seven months when this case crossed your desk. May 27th, 1978 was the day that Gwendolyn Elaine Fogels was killed. Where were you when you first heard about the murder?
1: I was in the photography lab. You were. When they brought the case over to me, and that was the first time I had heard about the murder, I always get an incident reports and synopsis of the case when they bring them in. That is filed in my case file as well. And that's when I saw that Elaine was from my home county. The Fogel name was familiar to me as well. I knew some Fogels, but I did not know her. She was around my age. She was a little younger, and when those photographs came in, when I developed them, I had this eerie feeling that went through me because, as I said, she was from my hometown. She had been in the medical profession before she left Orangeburg to go to Walterboro. I was in the medical profession before I left the country to go to my training and then on to Columbia. And when I saw her in the photographs, when they found her body, Elaine was dressed like me. We dressed in little rugged shirts back then. And she had a little rugged shirt that was pulled up above her breast and had jeans that were pulled down below her waist and they were missing, but her shoes were still on. Around the house, there were things in her house that I had in my house, country things like iron, uh, stone jugs. There was even an iron corn shell. If you don't know what a corn shell is, one of my investigators asked me that too. He said, Rita, what in the hell is a corn shell? I said, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an iron piece of equipment that you put dry corn into it. After it's dried on the ear, you put dried corn into it. It has spikes, and when you turn the handle, it'll shell the corn for you. And he said, well, I guess that tells me that not everybody would have a corn sheller in their house, and I said, yeah. And then she had different tables in there like I had in my house. And the scary thing was that the metal fire poker that was wrapped around Elaine's neck, I had one of those same fire pokers in my house. And that's when I just felt an eerie feeling that I almost had a connection to Elaine because it kind of just really hit home to me. When I found out more about Elaine, she was 26 years old at the time, she worked at the hospital for a little while and then she went to work for a prominent doctor there also is a medical technologist so she she was out in the public the public knew her the patients and she did a lot of um, community work she loved children she just she took them to ball games sometimes she babysat a lot she worked with the children in the church she was just a lovely person, and everybody in Walterboro, because it was a small town, they pretty much knew Elaine as coming in the doctor's office, and, and, and they just they loved Elaine. They just said there was no more beautiful person in the world than Elaine.
0: Well, I'm afraid we, have to do, we do have to talk about this part of it. Um, Elaine was attacked about 11.30 p.m. on the night of May 27th, 1978. Her roommate, Nancy Hooker, found her. Uh, You write in the book that uh, Nancy and her boyfriend came home late that night, sort of early Sunday morning. Can you describe what they found? And, And I have to say for our listeners, you know, this is a terrible crime. And Your description in the book is graphic, but the details, distressing as they are, they are actually very important to our understanding of the case. Can you describe what they found?
1: Elaine had babysat that night for some friends, and she left their house around 11.15 p.m. So that would put her arriving home at about 11.30 p.m. Now, Elaine's roommate and her friend had been to a meeting down in Myrtle Beach, which was probably a hundred so miles away. And they returned to the home around 1.45 a.m. And when they went inside, they saw Elaine covered in blood, unconscious, and partially nude, lying on the living room floor in front of the couch. They immediately rushed to the police department, Walterboro Police Department, and it was only a mile away, and they told police what they'd seen. They did not disturb anything in the house, and they weren't even sure if Elaine was alive or dead. Her friend, her roommate's friend, did say it appeared that she had been beaten and was sexually assaulted.
0: Right.
1: And... The EMS arrived, and Walterboro police arrived immediately after that, and of course they found that Elaine was deceased, and then of course that's when they called the pathologist in back then, Dr. Sexton, they called him in, also the medical examiner. They also called Dr. Flowers, too, to tell Dr. Flowers about Elaine. And he also came over to the scene. And that was back then, people came to scenes. Today, you know it's a lot different, but there was some foot traffic in and out of the scene after the body was removed too. But it appeared that Elaine had come home that night, opened her front door. When she opened that door, they believed that the person was inside of the house in the midst of a burglary. And when she opened the door, kind of element of surprise, he saw her and that's when he took the first blow to her. And she fell right there by the front door because there was a pattern of blood, dragged blood over to where her body was found down below the couch. So apparently he had hit her there and dragged her over to that couch and that's where The rest of the assault happened.
0: So she was surprised, but he was surprised too.
1: Yes. He apparently closed the front door, locked the front door after he got her in there. And when the roommate and friend came home, the door was locked. But the light was on inside the house And that's when they thought that strange anyway, because Landon didn't usually stay up that late. And they had heard her say that she was going to her mother's the next day to her mother's birthday party in Orangeburg. So that's when they thought it was strange. And uh, when he opened the door, it was just a horrible sight for them. But they just backed out and went to the police department.
0: At some murder scenes, the victim is caught off guard and... That's just kind of it. The, the killer gets one strike and the victim goes down. And that's kind of the end of the story. But in this case, there was a fight, wasn't there? I mean, Elaine seems to have fought back. She was dragged. She put up a life or death struggle.
1: Yes. When the pathologist got there, the first thing he saw was that she had defense wounds to her knuckles and on her arms. And he said, this woman put up one hell of a fight against this guy. You know, that's one thing, too, that if she put up a fight with this guy, he may have had bruises and cuts all over him, too. So that was one thing investigators said. Well, if she put up this big of a fight, he may have had cuts and bruises or if he was using a knife or whatever he was using he may have cut himself and made him bleed. And that happens a lot, of course, at a crime scene. But the shocker was when they examined her body, there was a metal fire poker wrapped around her neck. And we later learned that her dad had given her this fire poker to keep next to the door for her protection, That was what killed her, strangulation. And then the matter of death was, of course, homicide. But along with all the beatings and and powerful blows that he gave her, the ending product was strangling her with that fire poker and asphyxiating her.
0: How had her killer gotten entry into the house?
1: The investigators found that he had entered a back window. There was three windows on the back of her house and he had entered one of the windows by knocking out the glass and we know he was outside because the glass was knocked to the inside of the dining room floor and he reached in and unlocked the glass and pulled the window up and got into the house. There was also footprints down below that window that was photographed, and there were very clear footprints.
0: So, all cases turn on evidence, but this case turns heavily on the evidence that was found at the scene. You write that about 40 pieces overall were collected, and if we can, I'd like to ask you just a, a few questions about some of the key pieces of evidence in turn. So. You mentioned the fireplace poker that was by the door. Her father had given that to her. That was the murder weapon, the uh, weapon of strangulation. Her clothing, there were, there were some unusual aspects of her clothing, weren't there, with her dresser, with her blue jeans, where they were found. Can you describe what was going on with the clothing in the house?
1: They found, like I said, her jeans were missing from her body, but her shoes were on, And they found the jeans on the roof of her little back porch. So apparently he took those jeans and threw them up on top of the roof, the bad guy, when he left. That's where her jeans were found. They did find a pair of panties on the couch. They weren't sure if they were the roommate's panties or Elaine's panties. But at that time, they photographed it.
0: Why were her jeans on the roof?
1: You know, we don't know. After I read the thing, I just kind of felt like he said, oh, well, I'm through with this now. And he just walked out and threw them up on the roof. But those are my thoughts. People do crazy things when they kill people. In investigations, it is they just do crazy things, and some of them have their own little signatures that they leave at every crime scene they go to, Uh, but I think this guy, he just kind of said, okay, well, maybe he was thinking he was going to take them home for a souvenir, I don't know. But he obviously took him out that back door and threw him off on top of the roof, which was crazy. But that's where they ended up. And that's where, and thank God, the officers looked up there, the investigators, and found the jeans.
0: The shoe prints in the sand, you mentioned, what kind of shoes was he wearing? Did we learn anything from them?
1: We did not see that in the report. There was a report, but they could get, they could get a size, and they could get the tread marks, from that shoe print in the sand, it was very clear. And and I've got to admit, during my career, we photographed a lot of shoes from persons of interest. They would bring the shoes in to me to photograph, and if they had a shoe print of any kind in blood or in the sand, and I photographed the soles of those shoes, they could possibly match them back to the bad guy's shoes if we had his shoes, because there's always imperfections in everybody's shoes, even the way they're worn or if there are little cuts in them. But this particular one uh, did not yield anything back in the original investigation.
0: You write in the book that there is a considerable amount of bodily evidence that was taken from this scene. We have fingerprints, palm prints, fingernail scrapings, blood, hair, uh, samples from the rape kit, and so forth. What did the organic evidence, what did the autopsy uh, reveal about Elaine's murder?
1: There was a considerable amount of evidence taken from Elaine's body as well during the autopsy. And um, some of that was combing of the pubic hair and um, pubic hair was pulled from the skin and fingernail scrapings from her left hand and her right hand and of course the black metal polka was taken from around her neck. And I'd like to say that at the autopsy the pathologist told me that it took two people to unwrap that polka from around Elaine's neck. And then there was a huge amount of semen collected from Elaine vaginally and anally. And the pathologist, he was very meticulous. He put those into vials and we had color back then for the vials. And he had them all packaged up. And they were to go to SLED later for the blood analysis and the semen analysis. And he signed them over to the SLED agent to take two SLED headquarters in Columbia to the laboratory. And the same thing with the fingernail scrapings and the pubic hairs. They were to be taken to SLED. And some were doing at the medical college here in Charleston as well. But the, the main ones went to SLED to be analyzed.
0: You write in this very unusual passage in the book that one of the great mysteries of this crime scene was her car keys. They were never found.
1: First investigators, original investigators, kind of summarized that they thought this was a burglary going bad. They thought the bad guy was in the house when Elaine got home in the process of burglaries and possibly, you know, back then looking for drugs, that was a possibility. And being that Elaine worked at a doctor's office, that put another point in their head that, you know, maybe they were seeing if she had any drugs in the house or possibly if she had access to the doctor's office all the time, if there was any keys in the house. And it turned out that the only thing that was missing from that crime scene that they could tell was her car keys. But her car was still in the driveway. Dr. Flowers had come over to the house that night, the doctor she worked for, and he immediately had Billy, her friend that came in and found her. He and Billy went over to his office and immediately changed the locks on the office doors in case the guys knew that Elaine weren't there and we were going over and we might can steal some drugs from the breaking and steal some drugs. But that never occurred and nothing else could be found missing in that house. So if it was a burglary, he didn't get anything out of the house except the car, the car keys. And you would think that he might have was going to steal the car, but he left and the car was still there.
0: So Rita, let me ask you, you have the evidence that's collected on scene, you have the synopsis given to you by the investigator who arrives to write it up. But why do you think... Elaine was killed.
1: I believe that it was a robbery going bad. You know, murder of convenience. She walks in, and the bad guy's surprised, and, oh, my God, she looks at me. Maybe she recognizes me. And Elaine started fighting back. And we later found out that the bad guy did not like a woman telling him what to do or fighting back. He was in control, and he wanted to be in control of her, and I think it was just the robbery going bad, and and then he just started beating her, and he kept beating her, and he wanted to make sure that she was dead, and he ended up putting that fire poker around her neck.
0: So Waltheburg goes in that night. They shoot the scene. They do a pretty good job, as you say. And then they bring everything back to SLED, where you were that Monday in the crime lab. Uh, what what were your first steps once you got that evidence in hand? What did you do at that point?
1: When Walterboro would bring it to SLED, they had to sign it in as evidence downstairs in our evidence logging area. Then it would shift to the correct departments that it needed to be, such as photographs would come to my department, film would come to my department, evidence would go to the crime scene department, and then the crime scene, if they needed photographs of what the evidence came in, they would bring it over to me. And in this particular case, the lifts from the crime scene that Walter brought to the crime scene investigators at SLED, which included the fingerprint examiners were a part of that crime scene they examined that evidence for any fingerprints after they dusted it and they would bring it over to me to photograph the fingerprints as well as them bringing that evidence over to me before they dusted for fingerprints so that it would not be altered so we photographed it before they would dust it and then if they found fingerprints Then they would bring it over to me to photograph it, and I would photograph it and file those negatives in my photo file and give the crime scene team a hard copy photograph. So they had a hard copy. I had the negatives, and you can go back to those negatives. That's one good thing about photographs. You can go back to them 25 years later, and that shows you exactly how The crime scene looked back then, how the evidence looked back then, and we have that as a permanent record. And that is still today even with digital photography. The initial crime scene photography is just 100% important. And being able to file it and go back when you need to refer to it to assist with the investigation is crucial.
0: Well, let me ask you— Until very recently, photography was a slow process. It's a meticulous process. You were having to be very careful with the chemicals, with the developer, um, with the integrity, actually, of the negatives, that they're not overexposed. To what degree, as you are doing your work, is time of the essence? The killer is still out there, and yet you are handling evidence which could be pertinent to the case as it is unfolding right then and there. So how does that work?
1: Time is the important thing. Get it out as soon as possible. And with a case like this, I mean, when they brought it in, we got right on it. And take care of any kind of evidence that we have because we've got a killer out there. There may be another victim before you can get in. So yes, it is definitely Definitely time. So we would get on it right then and um, give the investigators something to work with.
0: How long did it take you to go through the material for Elaine's case, to process it?
1: Uh, myself, it probably took me an hour to go through the film that they brought in to me. Now, the investigators, they were examining evidence as I was processing the film from the crime scenes. Of course, that took longer. That took longer because if they brought in, like I said, any kind of piece of evidence that they brought in, they bring in doors sometimes or tables and chairs and glasses, and they had to dust them for fingerprints in order to see if there was any prints or any blood um, patterns or anything on them. So theirs took a lot longer. But we had... In Lynn's case, they had the lifts from the crime scene and me photographing them in just a matter of the days. And and when they got them to me and I photographed them, I probably processed that film and printed it up within an hour to two hours and gave the investigators those prints where they could work with.
0: You guys are processing an enormous amount of material in your lab at that point. What specifically did the crime scene photographs reveal, if anything?
1: There was an enormous amount of blood all over that living room. And that was important because our investigators could actually tell, you've heard a blood spatter and then droplets of blood going 90 degrees down on the floor. And was it from the victim or was it from the bad guy? And and we just didn't know back then because all you could do was get a blood type. So that was important is to the position location of the blood, as I said, too. It showed where she was dragged from the front door over to the position they found her in when the roommate came home that night. And then they always document, too, when they lift these prints, where they are lifted from so that we'll know where they were lifted from when we photograph them and file them and maybe have to go back to them and also the shoe print we had to really document that with the best lighting in the photo lab that I could in order to enhance any of the treads on the shoes and the same thing with the fingerprints if you could enhance them not alter them, don't like the word alter, it's always enhanced prints for the examiners to be able to use them better. And there was one area on Elaine's stomach that appeared to be a bloody shoe print. And when they looked at the design of that blood pattern on her abdomen area, and looked at the photograph of the print outside the window, it had the same design. So they were pretty sure that he probably had stepped in the blood and when he was holding her down with his shoe as he was putting that fire poker around her neck. We were hoping we could do something with that, but it was just like the shoe print. We didn't have any shoes of the bad guy to match it back to at that time. And we didn't have a suspect or any person of interest at that time.
0: So take us forward a little bit. Take us into the days and the weeks following the murder. Who were Walterborough, P.D., and SLED? Who are they interviewing, and what are they learning?
1: Well, one thing that the really thought about to begin with was there two people because of the fire poker wrapped around her neck or was there one person that had brute strength that he could wrap that fire poker around her neck. From day one the investigators started thinking about persons of interest and one of their main interests they had kind of focused on one person who lived right around the corner from the lane in a trailer with his wife. The reason they focused on him was because they had had some run-ins with him in the past. He'd had some DUIs, and, and they knew Ronald Allen. And he was a big man. He was what we call a shade tree mechanic down here in the Lowcountry. He worked on cars in his backyard. He had a hoist in a tree where... He could almost lift the car off himself. He had a workbench. He worked out. He had a workbench in his front yard. He worked out, and he was very muscular. They decided that let's go talk to Ronald Allen. So they did go talk to him. He said, you know, I didn't have anything to do with this. And they actually looked at his shoes, too, to see if it would match up to the shoe prints under the window, and he had no shoes that even had the appearance of the design on the the shoe print under the windows. And there was quite a few shoe prints under those windows with the same design, so they figured that was the bad guy's shoe prints. They just kind of stayed focused on him, and they talked to other people that had a record around the area, some that had been in jail and out of jail. They actually took a few up to Columbia to polygraph them, but none of, none of them panned out with the shoe prints or anything. But they just couldn't get Ronald Allen out of their minds. They were just determined that it was Ronald Allen because he was close vicinity, um, crime of opportunity for him. and He, he drank. A lot, and and you know, doing some drugs probably, and he had a few DUIs, so that's the reason they really focused on him.
0: We haven't said much about the Fogel family, about Elaine's parents, Mertis and Wells, her sister Eolian, and her brother-in-law Larry. In your book, you note this unusual experience Larry had before the murder, almost kind of like a premonition of something that was about to happen. What was going on there?
1: Eolian and her husband, Larry, were also going to meet at her mother's on that Sunday to celebrate her mother's birthday. But when Eolian got home from work that night, Larry told her, said, you know, I've got a funny feeling. He said, why don't we just go on down to your mom's tonight and... uh, and we'll meet Elaine there in the morning. So they decided, okay, we'll we'll go on down and uh, we'll stay with them, and, and, and Elaine will come on down on Sunday. So when they got there, uh, Eolian, her mother, and Larry and her dad, they sat around and talked a little bit, and then Larry and Elaine's dad went to bed. Elaine's mom and her sister sat around and talked till around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't long after they got in the bed that they heard a knock on the door, and that was one of the Orangeburg County officers who knew the Fogle family coming to relay the message that Elaine had been killed, and the pastor was also with them.
0: Let's move forward a little bit. You write that by the following year, which is 1979, Elaine's murder was Walterborough's number one cold case. Yet the investigation by this point had not turned up anything concrete. The Ronald Allen lead had fallen through. There weren't any other strong contenders. Um, The evidence didn't have any more to reveal at this point in time. And troublingly, some of the really important evidence, the semen samples had gone missing. So 1979 passes, 1980, 81, year after year goes by, and nothing new is coming to light. And then in July, 1985, Chad Caldwell, one of the SLED lieutenants, Files a report, and this report is not what Elaine's family wanted to hear, and it's not what anyone in Walterboro wanted to hear. What did he say?
1: The regional agent that was working with the Walterboro Police Department, he was not a crime scene investigator. We have regional agents all over the state that can respond to the immediate location. He lived in the Walterboro area. He actually was the one that the semen samples were signed over to.
0: You were on this case from the very beginning, but it wasn't just your job. It was something more than that. Despite the fact that you and Elaine never met, you felt like you already knew her, that Given the chance, the two of y'all probably would have been best of friends.
1: Even though I never met Elaine, after I did have the pleasure of meeting her sister, Eolian, and some of her extended family, Eolian told me, she said, Rita, she said, you and Elaine look alike. Y'all could have been the best of friends. And and I told her, I said, you know, I've already felt that, Aeolian. I said, that's the reason I could not get this case out of my mind. Although I wasn't on the front-line investigation, I had all this evidence that I had worked with, and I go back a lot and just pull that file out and look at it. But the investigation had stalled. But I did. I just... It it was just my personal quest that I said, this case can be solved. And then it got to the point where they just had nothing else around 1985, and it just went cold.
0: Thanks for listening. Our guest today has been Rita Schuller, author of The Low Country Murder of Gwendolyn Elaine Fogel, A Cold Case Solved, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time for the second part of our interview in the conclusion of Elaine's story. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer Bill Huffman, audio engineer Ian Douglas, production director Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We're just getting started here at Crime Capsule, and we're excited to bring you the best of true crime writing over the upcoming weeks and months. To find out more, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com.